Take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 together this morning as we look at the ninth out of ten commandments in the Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking at commandment number nine in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. While you're turning there, I want to take a moment and uh, just say a pastoral word. Because as we've been walking through uh, eight commandments up to this point, we've been dealing with some really hard issues. And in fact, we've been dealing with a lot of heart issues. And uh, here's, here's what happens when God's Word is opened. God's Spirit uses God's Word in the lives of God's people. And sometimes that is to encourage us and to build us up. Sometimes it is to give us hope. Sometimes it's to point us to our great future. But sometimes God's Word shows us our sin. And sometimes the Word of God functions like a sword that pierces the heart or a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon that cuts away what is poisonous in our lives. And... Sometimes God uses his word to bring conviction in our lives, a sin that, that remains. And uh, that's a good thing, actually. It's a very hard thing when God convicts you of an area of sin in your life, but it's actually a good thing because God's plan and purpose for your life is for you to look like Jesus. And that means that his ultimate good for you is not necessarily that you go through a pain-free life or you don't encounter difficulty, but that you look like Christ. And one of the ways that God shapes us to look more and more like Christ is by showing us our sinfulness. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit brings conviction of our life and uh, into our life. And because we want to be pleasing uh, to God, the, the right response to the Holy Spirit's conviction is confession. We confess our sin before the Lord uh, in the words of Psalm 51 as a sin against Him and Him alone. And so we confess our sin to the Lord, and then, but we also confess our sin to those that our sin has affected. So anyone that we may have sinned against or our sin may have caused harm or hurt, uh, the right thing to do as believers is to not only confess to God, but confess, to our, confess our sins to one another, as the Scripture calls us to do. But when we confess our sins, here's, here's the truth, there are usually consequences. And so I just want to acknowledge the fact that there may have been some sins over the last few weeks that have been confessed in this place, and maybe God has convicted you of something in your life, and you confessed it to him and did the right thing there and confessed it to someone else and did the right thing there, but now you feel like maybe you're standing in the rubble of a mess that you've made with your life. And you may be here today feeling quite hopeless about your future because you're, you're just wondering, have I made a wreck of things? Is there any hope? Can I... Can there be forgiveness? Can there be reconciliation or restoration? And so if that's you, let me, this is the pastoral word I want to give you, and that is just to give you, to give you hope. Just to know that if you have confessed something, maybe it's something deeply hurtful, and you are standing in the wreckage right now and just wondering how you're going to put it back together, or if God can, I want you to know there is no pit that you can climb into that is so deep that God can't rescue and redeem and restore there is no mess that is so big that God cannot restore it. And I just want you to know that. I want you to know that there is hope, uh, that even though you may be in the wreckage and the rubble, that God can redeem and restore and rebuild. And let me just tell you, I've been there. Okay, I've been there. Amy and I are very open about our story. 
But in the seventh year of our marriage, we had a terrible year of marriage. Amen? She said, "Uh uh-huh. It was an awful year. Awful. We didn't even like each other, which is hard to imagine, I know. But um, but truly, we had a hard time being in the same room together. And there were days where we just thought, are we ever going to be able to get out of this pit? Or are are we too deep? I'm just telling you, 16 years of marriage later... That God is faithful and that God can bring you out of the pit. She said, that was a good hearty amen right there. <laughs> God can bring you out of that pit. And so I just want you to know that. And, but there may be some construct, constructive work that needs to happen. There may need, need to be some rebuilding that happens. And guess what? That's what the church is for. That's why we're here. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not perfect people. We are sinful people who've been redeemed by Jesus. And we're here to help each other towards Christ. And so this is a place where if you've made a mess and now you've confessed and your sin is known and you're wondering if there's any hope, this is the place where you have brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk alongside of you. That includes pastors, includes ministers. We've got a counseling center uh, called Hope Road where counselors can come alongside and help. But there are faithful men and women in this room who will love you and show mercy and grace and compassion and they will walk with you through that. And so I just wanted you to hear that from me today before we dive into the text, just to hear that word of hope that there is nothing so broken that God can't put it together again. Amen? All right, with that said, that has nothing to do with the sermon at all, okay? That's just a freebie today. But let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16 as we look at the ninth commandment together. And I want to read verse 16. It says, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. We're talking about how life works best. God's design for our lives to flourish and to thrive. And God says, if you want to do life best, you won't bear false witness against your neighbor. So I want to talk with you for a few moments this morning on the importance of being people who believe the truth, love the truth, and speak the truth. You know, people have a complicated relationship with the truth. Uh, From the opening pages of the Bible, you see that poisonous question slip out from the serpent's crooked tongue. Did God really say? And our first human parents chose to live a lie as they believed the serpent and they chose their own truth instead of God's truth. And truthfully, things have gone downhill from there. You remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate? Pilate asked that poignant question, what is truth? Many in our culture would have a hard time recognizing the truth if it hit them in the face. Most people won't even acknowledge that there is a category called the truth. We commonly hear mantras in our day and time. There is no such thing as absolute truth, which is, of course, you know, the irony of it is that that's an absolute statement. Or they'll say, all truth is relative. Or, you know, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. What matters is that that we each live our own truth. Anybody ever heard that one before? Okay, so this is kind of where we're at. And more specifically, in this cultural moment, we are seeing a movement today that says truth is whatever I claim it to be. I can identify however I want to identify, whatever gender I want to be. All I have to do is identify that way, and I'm that gender. Or even whatever race I want to be, all I have to do is identify that way. Listen, I want to identify as someone who lives in Hawaii, but that doesn't make it true. And so in the face of all of this, God says if you're going to be my people, if you're going to live distinctly in this world, you must be people who believe, love, and speak the truth. In the ninth command, God gives Israel instruction about how to love one another 
by being people who are characterized by the truth. He says, do not give false testimony. Some of you have a more common translation. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. If we believe that God is a God of truth, and we do believe that, then we cannot be people who live by lies. John Calvin uh, expressed the big idea of this ninth command. That's the future of the church right there. Isn't it a beautiful noise? It's a beautiful thing. We love kids at Moberly. Amen? John Calvin, uh, John Calvin expressed the big idea of commandment number nine very well when he said this. I want you to look at what Calvin says about commandment number nine. He says, since God, who is truth, abhors falsehood, then we must cultivate unfeigned truth towards each other. Now, I want, I want you to think about that quote for a moment. I'm going to ask you all to just leave that up on the screen for a second. Let's just start with that phrase, God, who is truth. We believe that God exists, that He is real, that that's the truest truth we can ever know, and that there are some important implications of that, that God is in His character true, that He speaks truth, that there is a category called the truth, and He abhors falsehood. Why does God hate or abhor falsehood? Well, you know, the first, very first lie that you find in the Bible is on the lips of the serpent. Satan is the father of lies, and the very first falsehood happens in the Garden of Eden that causes the fall of mankind. Why does God hate falsehood? Because God hates what hurts us. It's a good place for an amen. God hates what hurts us. He knows that falsehood hurts us. Falsehood caused the fall. And so God hates falsehood. And because He is truth and He hates falsehood, we need to live our lives in accordance with that. We must, as a result of that, cultivate unfeigned, unadorned truth towards each other. What this is saying is that God is the God of truth and we need to line our lives up under Him as people of truth. Or to put it in the words of J.I. Packer, as Christians... We are being called here in this commandment to hold truth sacred. Hold truth sacred. So as we think about the ninth commandment, I want to just ask three questions this morning. Number one, what does it mean to bear false witness against my neighbor? Number two, why do we bear false witness against our neighbors? And then number three, how can we be set free from falsehood and live as people of truth. Okay, so let's talk first of all about what does it mean to bear false witness. The ninth, ninth command here, do not give false testimony or do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now that commandment is expressing a general truth that we should be people of truth who do not lie. I, I've told you before, the, the Westminster Catechism says that in the commandments, whatever is forbidden, the opposite is required. So if we're forbidden from bearing false witness, then we are required to bear faithful witness. If we're forbidden from living false lies, we're called to love and to live the truth and to speak the truth. So that's a general, that's a general truth in this commandment. But this commandment actually has a more specific and immediate concern what this is talking about when you, when you read this language, it's interesting. He doesn't actually say, do not lie. He says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And the context of this commandment in its, in its uh, most immediate and specific concern is the context of a law court. God is saying to Israel, if you're going to love your neighbors well, then if there's ever a moment where you go to law against your neighbor and you're tempted to say something false in order to cause harm or hurt, 
don't bear false witness against your neighbor in a court of law. Now, in the ancient world, this would have been seen as very, very, very important because in the ancient world, if you were accused of something and you were brought to a law court, there wasn't all of the, the technology that we've got. I mean, if you've ever seen CSI Miami, you know, there's all these gadgets and gizmos. There's all this tech that you can use, right? Fingerprint evidence and uh, DNA testing and video surveillance and all of these kinds of things that you can use to try to show if someone is guilty of a crime. Well, in the ancient world, you don't have any of that. All that you have are witnesses, and so if someone was going to be accused of a crime and be found guilty, it would be on the basis of the testimony of witnesses in a courtroom. And so God says here, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. If there's a moment where you stand uh, uh, to bear witness against the neighbor, don't bear false witness. Now, this was a matter of life and death in the ancient world. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, for instance, it said that if you were accused of something that maybe would uh, cause the death penalty you had to have two or three witnesses. So if you got two or three witnesses, then someone might get the death penalty. Imagine how critical it would be then to bear faithful witness, to tell the truth in the context of a courtroom. Because if you told a lie, not only might someone's reputation be on the line, but someone's very life might be on the line. You get this sense in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, uh, which says, you know, that there are six things that God hates. The first three are these, a prideful spirit, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Now, you see, those things are connected because in that day and time, a lying tongue might lead to the shedding of innocent blood. You see this also in places like Proverbs 18.21, which is quoted in the New Testament. Death and life are in the power of the what? The tongue. Now, we know that that's true for our lives. You can speak death. You can speak life. Uh, there, there's a lot of power in our, our tongue. You can kill by what you say. You can give life by what you say. But in the ancient world, that was a literal statement. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. If you took the stand, the witness stand, against your neighbor and you spoke what is false, death might be on your tongue. You might shed innocent blood because you didn't tell the truth. And so telling the truth is a life and death matter. Amen? And I would say that as, as true as that is in the ancient world, it's still true today. Telling the truth is a life and a death matter. And so God says specifically to Israel, I want you to be different. You can't take advantage of an opportunity to nail your neighbor to the floor by bearing false witness. You might be angry at that neighbor for something because, you know, they don't mow their yard on time or something like that, but you're not supposed to get back at them by bearing false witness in a courtroom. You've got to, in other words, you've got to so love and care for your neighbor that you don't, you're not only not willing to accuse them of something false, but you actually want to protect their reputation. You want to honor their life. You want to make sure that their, protect, their, their reputation and their life are guarded. And so we have the ability to do that with, with what we say, uh, with whether we are living lives of truth or lives of falsehood. One, one commentator <clears throat> uh, writing on the Ten Commandments has said that uh, in each of the Ten Commandments, you often have highlighted for you the worst possible way of sinning in a certain way. Okay, what, what he means by that is like, let's take the sixth commandment, uh, not to murder. That would be an example of the worst way to violate the command, but it's not the only way to violate the command, right? Because Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart, you violated the sixth command. But the sixth command in Exodus 20 gives you the very worst possible way to violate it. 
The seventh command, do not commit adultery. We know that that's not the only way to violate the seventh command because Jesus says if you have lust in your heart towards someone else, you've committed adultery. But the seventh command gives you the absolute worst way of violating the command, committing adultery. So as it relates to the ninth commandment, this is not the only way to live a life of falsehood, but it is highlighted as the very worst way you can violate this. What God is saying is the very worst way you can live a lie is by using your witness in such a way that it does hurt or harm to a neighbor without just cause. We should so care about our neighbors. We should so love the people around us that protecting their lives and their reputations ought to be a priority for us in such a way that the idea of the, the very idea of bearing false witness about them would be unthinkable. Now, bearing false witness in a courtroom might be the worst way that we can lie, but it's not the only way that we can violate the ninth commandment. In fact, I think there are seven other ways that we can violate commandment number nine. Let me just talk about those seven quickly. Number one, we can violate commandment number nine not only by bearing false witness in a courtroom, but, but by overt lying. Okay, to lie is to tell what's not true, whether you're in a courtroom or not. Any one of us can tell a falsehood. You know the first person to tell a lie, I told you? It was Satan in the Garden of Eden. He begins by questioning God's word. Did God really say? That's always the first step towards a lie, is questioning the word of God. But then he moves to contradicting the word of God. He says, you will not surely die the day that you eat that fruit, even though God had said, you will surely die. So Satan is, a, is the father of lies. You know, that, that's how Jesus describes him in John 8, that Satan is the father of lies. The book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 10, says that he is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Some of you have been on the receiving end of Satan's accusations. Some of you know what it's like to be in the receiving end of Satan's lies. That means not only that Satan lies to us, Satan sometimes lies about us. Sometimes he will come and whisper an accusation into our ear. He'll remind us of our past. He'll tell us what is not true about our status with Christ. He'll try to cause doubt and he'll try to cause fear. Satan loves to remind us of our past and make us question our future. That's Satan's modus operandi. He is the father of lies. So when we tell a lie, we're acting like the devil. In fact, you're never more like Satan than when you tell a lie. So we violate the ninth commandment by lying. Number two, by exaggerating. You can violate the ninth commandment by exaggerating. You know what exaggeration is, right? It's where you catch a minnow, but you describe it like a manta ray. All right, where are my fishermen in the house? You catch that six-inch fish, but you say, well, it was, you should have seen it. It was this big. You know, or you manipulate the the camera angle to make it look bigger. You remember doing that as a kid? Look at this big fish I caught. We call it stretching the truth. And that can happen uh, both to the the positive and the negative. To the positive, we could stretch the truth. For instance, if you're trying to sell a car and you've been hearing that knocking under the hood, but then you talk to a potential buyer and you, you oversell the car, you try to make it sound better than the car actually is, that's exaggerating. It's violating the ninth commandment. You can also violate the ninth commandment, exaggeration to the negative. Uh, 
If you describe a person as worse than what they are, you describe a situation, maybe you've gone through a situation, you're telling the story about the situation, you make it sound like it is way worse than it actually happened, that would be an example of exaggeration. So by lying, by exaggerating. Number three, by telling half-truths. We violate the ninth commandment when we don't tell all the truth. You know, when you stand in a courtroom, you swear to tell the what? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So a half-truth is when you tell some, but not all, of the truth. We do typically do that because it's more convenient not to tell the whole truth. The woman at the well is a good example of this in the Bible. In John chapter 4, Jesus asks her to bring her husband to him. And she responds with a half-truth. She says, well, I'm not married. Well, that was true. She was not married. What was the full truth, though, is that she'd been married five times and her live-in boyfriend was not her husband. See, she told a half-truth. This happens with advertising all the time. You walk down the cereal aisle, how many times do you notice on the cereal box? You know, it can be part of a heart-healthy diet. Well, that's half the truth. What the other half is, is that you can't eat anything else that's enjoyable. You know, so you, so you just pour those Honey Nut Cheerios and that's all you, you eat and it's part of a heart-healthy, it's half the truth. In 1946, Camel Cigarettes got in trouble because they told a half-truth. They ran an advertisement that said that um, according to an independent study, doctors preferred their brand. The other half of the truth was that that independent study was conducted by an advertising agency that they had hired. That's an example of a telling a half-truth. It's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Number next, by gossiping. We violate the ninth commandment when we gossip. This is when you whisper a rumor about someone else. Now, that rumor might be false, or it might be something you can't prove is true or false, or it might be something that's true, but you spread the rumor with the intent of hurting your neighbor. You know, sometimes people make friends by having a common enemy. And sometimes because you want to be liked by person A, you share a rumor about person B so that you have this inner circle thing going on with the person that you shared the rumor with. Gossip can be a truth that's weaponized in order to hurt someone else. Or it can just be false. Or it can be something that's an unsubstantiated or unprovable rumor. Gossip may be passing along something you don't know to be true or passing along something you know to be true, but the purpose is passing it on to hurt. And this shows us that by gossiping and by violating the ninth commandment, you know, the commandment, commandment number eight says not to take what doesn't belong to you. You know, it's possible to steal your neighbor's stuff. It's also possible to steal your neighbor's good name. It's possible to steal your neighbor's reputation. And we can do that by gossiping. Number next, by slandering. Slander is a, a form of false witness. Now, slander goes beyond gossip. Gossip might be passing on something that may or may not be true. Slander is when you pass along something that's false in order to damage someone's reputation. It can be very subtle. Sometimes we do this when we ascribe a false motive to someone and we tell person A that person B did such and such because of some motive that we're assuming. You know, she didn't return my calls because she's just selfish like that. Well, maybe she didn't get your call, you know? Are you ascribing a false motive? That could be slander. Slander happens in political advertising all the time, doesn't it? 
Amen, Betty. That's exactly right. All kinds of ways to slander, to say something false, maybe to ascribe wrong motives, maybe even failing to give the benefit of the doubt. All of those can be forms of slander. Okay, here's another one. What are we on? Number six. Thank you. By flattering. Okay, now flattering is the opposite of slander. Slander says something negative about someone that isn't true. It's putting someone down with a falsehood. Flattery is the opposite. Flattery says something positive about a person that's not true, and it's putting them up with a falsehood. Uh, Flattery says something positive about a person that is not true. Maybe you compliment your boss, but you don't really mean it. You're flattering them. And maybe there's a reason that you're flattering them, right? You, You buy that world's best boss mug, but you don't really believe that. You just want the pay raise or you want the promotion. So you butter your boss up a little bit, right? That's an example of flattery. It's saying something that's not true in order to prop somebody up. Alistair Begg said one time about flattery that flattery is like perfume. You should sniff it, but not swallow it. That's pretty good advice. So you can violate the ninth commandment by saying something negative about a person or by saying something positive about a person. You're like, Pastor, you get me coming and going with this one. I can't say something negative about them. I can't even say something positive. No, not negative, not positive if it's not true. But here's one more. Here's the final way that we violate the command, and this makes it even more complicated. You can violate the ninth commandment by speaking or by not speaking. And one of the ways that we violate the ninth commandment is remaining silent when we should speak. You know, that's a, a way to bear false witness against a neighbor. If someone says something about a neighbor that's not true, and you know it's not true, but you say nothing, you're participating in the lie with your silence. You're not correcting it. You're just listening it in. We're actually participating in the lie by not saying what is true. So all of these are forms, violations of the ninth commandment. We bear false witness. We can do that in the context of a courtroom. We can do that outside of the courtroom just by overt lying. We can do it by exaggerating. We can do it by uh, telling half-truths. We can, tell, uh, uh, we can bear false witness by uh, gossiping, by slandering, by flattering, or sometimes even by remaining silent when we should be speaking the truth. Why do we do that? Because I, I think if you think about that list of seven or eight things, <clears throat> the reality is if we're honest with ourselves, probably every person in the room has violated the ninth commandment in some way. We've all lived lies or spoken lies or believed lies. Would you agree with that? If you didn't say amen, you're probably lying right now, okay? <laughs> so we've all been there. Why? What, what is it about us that causes us not to be honest, not to tell the truth? Uh, Jen Wilkin says that our speech reveals our character, that you can draw a direct line from the heart to the mouth. Would you agree with that? So what we say, whether, you, whether you're a, a person who uses angry speech, that might tell you something about your heart, or you're a person who's used deceptive speech, it tells you something about your heart. Jesus said this very thing in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in the heart will come out, the mouth. And here's the thing. I think that false speech reveals something about our Hearts. I think it reveals, bearing false witness reveals underlying heart problems. And I think that there are three. 
at least three. I'm, I only have time to talk about three. In fact, I probably don't even have time to talk about three. Bearing false witness may reveal the heart problem of pride. One of the reasons that we bear false witness against our neighbor, whether your neighbor is a sibling or a Sunday school member or someone literally a neighbor down the street, sometimes we put someone else down in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We put them down so that we can be lifted up. That's, that's pride. We gossip or slander someone else in order to make ourselves feel better. It's almost like a form of therapy. I begin to feel better about myself when I think everyone around me is worse than I am. That's pride. It's why, you know, as a kid, you enjoyed tattling to your parents about one of your siblings. Because it made them look bad and made you look like the star sibling. Anybody else or was that just me? I can see it sometimes today. You know, the kids can't wait to tell mom or dad about that thing brother or sister did because they want to feel better about themselves, right? I mean, so you tell your parents, hey, brother, you know, broke the window by throwing a baseball through it without also saying that you were also playing catch and you missed the ball. <laughs> it's a half truth. Why would we do that? Because we want the sibling to look like the bad one. We want to look like the good one, right? It's, it's pride, putting myself up by putting others down, putting myself up by bearing false witness. Look, think back to Proverbs 6, 17. Six things the Lord hates, right? Here's the first three. A prideful spirit, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. I think those three are all connected to one another. When we have a lying tongue, it may shed innocent blood, but why do we have a lying tongue? It's because of a prideful spirit. So I tell a lie or I participate in gossip because I want you to look bad so that I can feel better about myself. So bearing false witness may reveal pride. Number two, it may reveal hatred. Maybe we're so mad at someone else that we want to bear false witness as a means of hurting them. So a lie becomes a weapon to hurt. And maybe there's good reasons that we don't like them. Maybe they've hurt us. Maybe they've wounded us in some way. Maybe they said something that was false about our character, and so we're going to get back at them by saying something that's false about their character. Maybe someone hurts you at the family reunion at Thanksgiving, and so now the next time you're on the phone with your mom about Uncle Bob, you share a rumor about Uncle Bob because you're mad. And so as a, an aspect of hatred for someone else or contempt that you feel for another person, you use a lie as a weapon to get back. It's, a, it's an avenue for revenge by telling something false. Or maybe you're jealous at someone else's success. Envious that they've gotten the promotion at work. And so when you hear somebody at the office speak negatively about them, you fail to correct it. Because them being put down is a weapon for you. It's a way to get back at them. It's maybe a... Uh, what do you call it when it's not overt? Amy, help me. Passive aggressive, thank you. Passive aggressive, maybe a passive aggressive way at getting back at someone. Or maybe you hear somebody speak positively about someone else that you don't like. Maybe it's that athlete on the team who's better than you, faster than you, stronger than you, and you hear somebody else give them an accolade and you say, well, if you just knew what they were like in the locker room, you wouldn't think that way about them. You know, we can do this all the time. So we, we do someone down by bearing false witness. Sometimes false witness can be about puffing ourselves up. Sometimes it's about putting others down. 
because there's a hatred in our heart for them. Here's the thing. I told you that the, the, the Ten Commandments are divided into two, two pieces, right? Commandments 1 through 4 have to do with our love for God. Commandments 5 through 10 have to do with our love for one another. Commandment 9 is in that second half of the law having to do with our love for one another. Here's, here's the truth. One of the major tests of how well I love my neighbor is both in how I speak to them, but also in how I speak about them. If I bear false witness against my neighbor, I really don't love my neighbor. So sometimes we bear false witness because there's hatred in our hearts. Here's the third and final reason I think that we bear false witness, and that is not just pride, not just hatred, but I think we sometimes bear false witness out of fear. And let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes we don't tell the truth about ourselves or maybe about a situation because we're afraid of what might happen if the truth were fully known. So <clears throat> this can happen if you show up late for work and you don't have a good excuse and you're afraid if the truth were known that you just slept in and that's why you're late for work, you're, you're afraid of the consequences. And so fear causes you to make up an excuse. You know, I got caught in traffic or there was a wreck on the interstate. And it seems like a little white lie that won't hurt anybody. But what's driving that? What's underneath that? It's, it's fear. I'm afraid of the consequences if the truth were known. Or maybe you turned in an assignment to your professor in college late because you were playing video games the night before instead of writing that paper. And you make up the classic excuse about the hungry dog. You know, the dog ate the paper. Professors have heard that one, by the way. Nowadays, they say, well, you know, chat GPT wasn't working right, and so I didn't get my paper finished. Google that if you don't know what that's about, all right? Um, we make up a little fib to the professor. Why? Because we're afraid of what might be known if the truth were told. But listen, I think sometimes that fear goes much deeper. I think the reason that we sometimes lie is because we're not sure that if we were fully known, that we would be fully loved. I think deep down in the human heart, every single one of us wants to be fully known and fully loved. And we're afraid that if people really knew the truth about us, they wouldn't love us. You know, it's possible to be fully loved, but not really fully known. People love you, but they don't really know what you're really like. And so they, they're in love with something that's not real. Because we want to be loved, sometimes we create something that's false so that we'll feel loved, even though we're not really fully known. On the other hand, you might be fully known, but not fully loved. People know what you're really like and they don't love you. And so there's this deep-seated fear in us that if people really knew what I was really like, they would not, they would not love me. Right? If, if my spouse knew this about me, would they still love me? If my pastor or my small group leader knew that I had this struggle, would they see me differently? I think in all of us, there's a fear that if the truth were really told, no one would love us. So what do we do? Well, we wear masks. 
uh, it's very easy to live what uh, psychologists would call a false self. We put up a false self. We put up a mask because we're afraid of being fully known. So we just create this false self that people can love, even though we know that the truth behind that mask is something very different. You know, the, 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 the idea of wearing a mask, of putting up a false self, the Bible's word for that is hypocrisy. It's trying to appear a certain way when the truth is something different. And the word hypocrite, actually it's a Greek word, hypocritos, which comes from the world of acting. In the world of acting, uh, in the ancient world, you know, in, in the modern day world, you have brilliant actors. Jim Carrey, you know, can make like 500 different expressions with his face. In the ancient world, you didn't have to do that. Instead, you would use masks. And so if you go to the theater today, you, oftentimes you'll see like uh, pictures of a happy mask or a sad mask. Anybody ever seen those? Because in the ancient world, to act, you didn't have to make a facial expression. You could just throw up a mask. So you might, for instance, on the inside, your real life, you might be very sad but you can throw up a happy mask and the audience doesn't know that you're sad. They just see the happy. Or you might be happy on the inside, but you need to play like you're sad, so you throw up the sad mask. Now that's the idea of wearing a mask. That's really the core of what hypocrisy is. And here's the thing, we wear masks all the time. And sadly, we sometimes even wear masks at church. Why? Fear. We're afraid that if people really knew the truth about us, they wouldn't love us. So we throw up a mask. We wear a false self. It's a, right, we come to this place and we've got to look put, put together. We have to look like our lives are, are shiny. And so people ask you, hey, how you doing? And we answer, fine. Fine is code for I'm drowning, but I can't be real about it. We're in church, so I got to be quote unquote, fine, right? I'm drowning at work. I've got a job that I hate. I, I'm miserable in my life. And yet I got to be happy, shiny people at church, right? Or I'm drowning in my marriage. We're wrestling with something that's really ugly and dark, and, but I can't let it be known in my small group. Or they might not think that we're good Christians or we don't have our life all together. So what do we do? We throw up a false self. We put up a mask. Because we're afraid that if we're fully known, we won't be fully loved. And sometimes we even think that about God. If God really knew what I was like, would he love me? Would he want me? So we create a false self and we live a lie. And we tell lies because we're really trying to hide what's true. We do this when, sometimes when you, you're trying to sell a house and you know the house is a lemon. And, you know, there's foundation problems and there are cracks in the walls, but you just paint over the cracks. You know, there's that hole in the closet wall, so you just put a picture up over the hole. And, you know, there's that one piece of flooring that in the summertime the glue comes unstuck and the flooring pops up a little bit, so you just put a treadmill over it. <laughs> you just kind of paper over the problems. Why? Because you think if the buyer knew what the house is really like, they wouldn't want the house. So we cover it over. That's what we do in our lives. If they knew what I was really like, they wouldn't love me. Let me create a false self. Let me tell a lie. Let me exaggerate the truth. Let me tell a half-truth. Let me not be really honest. Because if I'm fully known, I won't be fully loved. It's fear. So how can we be set free from that? How can we be set free from falsehood to live as people of truth? Well, it's... Simple, I hope, if you're a Christian today, I hope your mind is already going where I'm about to go. 
I hope those gospel wheels are turning because here's the truth. It's a truth that will set you free from fear. It is this, that you are more sinful than you want to admit. Amen? Okay? We are more ugly than we're even willing to admit. The reality is sometimes we lie to ourselves. (laughs) I just lie to you to make you think more of me. I lie to me to make me think more of me. We're more sinful than we want to admit, and yet the good news of Jesus Christ is that we are more loved than we'll ever imagine. And we are more loved than we can imagine by a God who knows us better than anyone else knows us and knows the truth about us more than we even know the truth about us. Like God knows how sinful I am more than I know how sinful I am. I'm so good at lying to myself about my own motives that I can deceive myself, but God sees the truth about me. I'm more fully known by God than you'll ever know me. I'm more fully known by God than I will ever know me. And yet, I am more loved by God than I can ever imagine. And the key to being set free from falsehood is to believe that you are fully known and fully loved when you're in Christ. That God sees you as you really are. And in Christ, he looks at you and says, I'm madly in love with you. I'm wild about you. I love you to death. Literally. The truth is, some of you know the truth about yourself so much that even hearing that God might love you might sound like a lie, and you may have a hard time believing it. But the Bible says clearly that what I'm saying is true. Romans 5, 8, God proves his love toward us in this, that while we were still, Christ died for us. You want to know the proof that you are fully known and fully loved? The proof is the cross. Because the cross is where God takes all of our ugliness and all of our sin on himself and in the death of Jesus Christ extinguishes it all. All of our sin, all of our lies, all of our falsehood, all of our ugliness goes to Christ. And all of his beauty and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness and all of his truthfulness comes to us. And in that moment, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we are fully known by God and at the same time fully loved because we're in Christ. And now listen, think about how that sets free, how it it sets us free from pride, hatred, and fear. Think about it. I told you the reason we bear false witness is because of pride, hatred, or fear. But think about how the gospel reverses that because the gospel addresses my pride. The reality is I'm saved by God's grace, not because of any righteousness of my own. I am loved by God, not because I deserve it or I earned it or I've done something to merit God's love. No, I am the chief of sinners. I am ugly. I'm sinful. And yet the God of the universe is madly, passionately in love with me. So how can I boast? It's not like I earned that. It's not like I deserve that. God just gives it to me as a free gift of his grace. So the gospel deals with my pride. Now I don't 
have to be trapped into thinking too highly of myself. I just realized, yeah, I'm like the worst guy ever and God loves me. And so it frees me from pride. It also frees me from hatred because I'm so fully known and fully loved by God, life is no longer a competition where I have to win by putting you down. I'm freed from that sort of competitive spirit. I'm fully loved by God, so there's a security that comes in that. And now I'm freed from hatred. Now I'm freed to love you and to care for you. And I want you to experience God's love like that as well. I'm, I'm freed to love you in that way. Now I'm called to bear faithful witness to a God who loves us. And the gospel frees us from fear. I'm fully loved even as I'm fully known, so I can face the truth about myself. And I don't have to live a lie anymore. Because one who is called in Scripture the true and faithful witness, Jesus, was willing to endure false witnesses to go to a cross for me. And being raised, he gives me new life. My sin can be forgiven. My falsehood can be removed and I can be made new and live my life as someone who knows the truth, believes the truth, loves the truth, and speaks the truth. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for how it shapes us. It wounds, but then it heals. And we're thankful. So help us to see the truth. Help us to face the truth so that we can speak the truth about ourselves and about you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.